This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. She's out this week. As much as we enjoy our Mississippi outdoors, it can sometimes not be as pleasant as we like. Have bumblebees ever ruined your afternoon, or have fire ants somehow found their way inside your shoe? Yes, they have on mine. Today on the show, our good friend Joe McGee will walk us through some of the more unpleasant sides of nature. Dr. Major is here, ready to answer some emails, some pet emails, uh, and talk about keeping our furry friends healthy. It's a special drive time edition of our show today, so we're not taking your calls, but you can show your support for this program and others by making a pledge by calling this number, one 888 Three seven two four four eight three. It's one eight 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 three seven two four four eight three. You can visit mpbonline.org to make your contribution as well. And if you ever miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, a reminder that it repeats every Saturday morning at six. So good morning, Doctor Major. Hope you're doing well this morning. Good morning. Uh, everything's very good. We've got some uh, pet emails to work through, uh, and later in the show we'll talk with Joe McGee about some of the more unpleasant sides of nature when it comes to insects and poisonous plants. Uh, How often do pets come into the clinic with wasp or bee stings or ant bites? Is it a problem for pets as much as it can be for us humans? Fairly often I think it's more more of a problem for some dogs and others, just like with people. Uh, And, of course, it depends on what type of insect uh, sting that would be. Uh, we see, you know, dogs are curious, and so are cats, and sometimes they stick their nose where <laughs> it maybe shouldn't be, and then they get popped or steam. We see some fairly severe allergic reactions uh, in dogs where the face will swell up uh, and almost close the eyes. Usually it's transitory, but certainly uh, uh, antihistamines, maybe steroids, certainly can help alleviate that problem if necessary. All right. As I mentioned, we got a couple of emails here. Uh, this first one says, uh, with starts out with actually some nice words. It says, your program's been an informative source that I've relied on for the past nine years. Thanks for being part of the journey with me and my dogs. I have two female dogs, nine years old, and over the past year, they've developed yeasty ears and breakouts in the underbelly region. I've tried prescription and home remedies, apple cider, but the breakout continues to come back, especially in the ears. Uh, Dr. Major, any thoughts or tips or advice? Well, and this this can be an issue. I, I suppose these dogs probably, I hate to say it like this, groom, groom each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say that uh, that licking can certainly spread spread the uh, uh, yeast type infection. A lot of times you'll have uh, the areas will look kind of gray and roughened, like uh, uh, hard to describe, but kind of cobblestone especially under the arms and groin area they're licking there. Uh, I'm sure she said she said she had tried prescriptions. Yes. Uh, ketoconazole is one of the things that we use frequently. And uh, the other is uh, itraconazole. But there may be some, some issues, uh, some issues with uh, getting it under control. 
but there are some things that can be done, and I'm sure she's consulted with a veterinarian about that. Uh, another thing, if they're particularly uh, paritic or itchy, uh, that needs to be controlled as well because the more they itch and scratch, the worse the infection becomes. Uh, so I would, I would say that she probably has done about as much as anybody could to tell you that it's caused by, uh, uh, caused by any uh, uh, particular thing like food. It's possibly good. She may want to try some different foods. But certainly, uh, I understand the problem, and it is very difficult to clear up once it gets uh, chronic. The ears are another story. There are some uh, combinations. We use a gel that has uh, uh, basically a Batril, which is an antibiotic, uh, some ketoconazole, and something for itching. You know, what can a dog do with its ears other than scratch and shake her head? So it makes it really difficult sometimes to treat. Using this particular thing, it, it's, we usually we treat it and don't do anything to the ear for 10 to 12 days, and it does seem to help. Uh, but as she mentioned, she tried prescriptions. And I know on our medical shows for humans, we often talk about that, you know, a doctor will try a, a medication that doesn't work. They have other kind of tools in their toolbox. But I guess vets are the yes. same way. So maybe follow up and say, hey, this isn't effective. Is there another medicine we might try? Right, and that it's not working. That's that's a good point. But the fact that both of the dogs have that, I would say that uh, they probably do groom each other. Dogs are bad about licking each other's ears, especially if there's an odor or smell. So that may be part of what's going on as far as spreading this particular thing. It's caused, caused by a, a yeast-type uh, organism, malassezia, and it's very common. But uh, it's one of those things that we... Uh, try to treat and control. Sometimes it does not clear up. Best of luck to you, though. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Troy Major answering some pet emails for us as we kick off this show on this Thursday morning. This next one says, Our neighbor's cat has decided to sleep under our patio and hang out in our yard to the delight of my six- and two-year-old daughters. The cat has bald patches on its back legs. The bare spots are not red, inflamed, or pussy. There's just no hair in spots. I thought perhaps he had fleas, but he doesn't scratch excessively. I don't think I've ever seen him scratch. What would cause the bald patches? I don't want my girls petting the cat if it has something contagious. Great question. Uh, Certainly some of the uh, issues might have to do with... uh a fungal disease, ringworm, if you will, which is caused by a fungus. Uh, certainly with young children, I would be very careful there. Uh, the other thing would be fleas, as you said. Uh, even though they didn't see any, the cat probably needs to be treated uh, for fleas. I would suggest that they talk to the neighbor, and if the neighbor actually won't or can't do it, maybe they could treat the cat for fleas. Uh, certainly, uh, if it's an outside cat and it's got that kind of hair loss, I would say fleas would be probably the number one I would think about. Uh, so the cat really needs to be checked out by a veterinarian, and I think it would be wise to have that done. You know, my cat has little, just small patches of, of where he doesn't have any fur. So is, is this somewhat a common thing and, then, and in some cases can kind of be benign? Yes, we see some cats that uh, have what's called miliary dermatitis, uh, and they'll have a roughened little bumps on their neck and back. And also, uh, they may be very, very itchy. 
some of those cats only re- only respond to steroids or some other type of treatment uh, like that. But again, uh, if your cat is just has little small areas, probably it's okay. Uh, certainly, if it gets worse, it needs to be seen. Uh, and another follow-up, I guess, with the six- and two-year-olds, uh, maybe this would be a good time to sort of teach kids how to interact with pets that are not in their family circle, and that would be, you know, don't be overly aggressive, maybe admire from afar, but be careful when you're approaching an animal that is not your pet. Right. It sounds like this cat is a good cat, but at the same time, there may be other cats. If they don't understand that some cats don't like to be petted or touched, uh, so they need to be careful. And that's a good time to explain that to them and train them, if you would. Uh, here's another one. This one says, I was wondering what your opinion about invisible fences with shock collars. My girlfriend has two small dogs. Uh, I think it would be in their best interest to have more outdoor activities. She's considering having one of those invisible fences installed. So looking for your opinion on that. They can work very well. Uh, one of the things that uh, maybe shock collar is a brutal statement. People think of something that brings a dog or a person to their knees. Uh, actually, it's just usually uh, it makes a little sound first before they get to the uh, underground fence. And then just a very mild uh, twinge, if you will. Most dogs respond to that. Some dogs could care less. They just keep going. Uh, the only real downside to uh, invisible fence is the fact that other dogs or other animals may come in. It's not going to keep them out. So there could be some issues there. But a lot of people that have the invisible fence are satisfied with it. I would talk to a professional uh, about that, by that a professional installer. Uh, and there are home kits that you can do. But if you're going to go to the trouble of putting up an invisible fence, I think you need to have somebody actually that knows what they're doing to install it. Uh, we're going to be visiting throughout the hour with Joe McGee. Joe, are you on the line with us? I am, yes. All right, we've got an email for you as well, and this one says, I've always heard that if you hear a tree frog during the day, it's going to rain. Any merit to that? And if so, do we know why? There may be some merit to that. Because uh, I've heard the same thing. The, the tree fr- There are three species that I hear calling sometimes before it rains. I think it has to do with the humidity perhaps a change in barometric pressure that the uh, frogs pick up on and the temperature. The, the frogs that I hear, and it's in the summertime, they're, they're not calling now, uh, the green tree frog, the squirrel tree frog, and the gray tree frog. And they do seem to call before it rains. There's something about the atmospheric conditions that seems to trigger this, or so I, so I have imagined. Uh, there may be a herpetologist out there listening who knows better, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, I think they do respond, and it it may not rain. It may not, you know, it may not. It's like the weatherman can't predict it with absolute precision, but the conditions are right for rain, and uh, the frogs seem to know that or to sense that. And, uh, Dr. Major, our dogs are sometimes similar like that. It seems like they kind of know when maybe there's approaching uh, change in weather, thunderstorms uh, coming our way. A lot of dogs are very sensitive to changes in barometric pressure or uh Maybe they also sense uh, through acute hearing or smell even that a thunderstorm is about to happen. Uh, so they they may not do any calling, but a lot of dogs that have fear are fearful of 
thunder and lightning, we'll know uh, quite a while before a storm approaches. That's, but, that's true, Kevin. It's also like uh, how the old people say, "My knee, my knee hurts," so I know <laughs> I know it's about to rain on my on my hands. My hands are swelling, so it got some bad weather coming. <laughs> and also, thought, yeah. I've heard too that uh, the the uh, old wives' tale. I don't know if it, urban myth, whatever. Uh, cows apparently, when they lay down, means um, that rain is coming. Uh, and I think I've heard that it's so that they can have a little dry spot. I don't know. But uh, it's interesting. I think those things, you know, started by uh, people observing something and, and maybe trying to put two and two together that's not quite four or whatever. But uh, it's interesting. Well, that's, that's folklore, yes. Mm-hmm. There may be some truth to that. A lot of people said when the cows were all lying down facing the same direction, there was something going on, which would be unusual if you had 30 cattle that were all facing the same way. But uh, there, there may be something, something to that. Uh, interesting. It is time for our first break. Uh, but if you're a supporter of MPB, thanks for you uh, helping produce Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Our fall on-air fundraising campaign is happening right now. Hit the red giving button at mpbonline.org or call us at 888-372-4483. Join- Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing the leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. We're back on Creature Comforts. Kevin Farrell here along with Dr. Troy Major and our guest today, one of our favorite guests, it's biologist Joe McGee. So, Joe, we love having you on the show because you're really a keen observer of nature. Uh, so tell us a couple of things that you're seeing around around you this time of year. Well, you've, you may have noticed that for the past few weeks, with the exception of the little cool spell that we had just a few days ago, we had a lot of foggy mornings, really foggy, dense fog. In fact, the Weather Service issued warnings about um, low visibility on the roads. But the fog will accumulate or collect on spider webs, making spider webs visible everywhere. Spider webs you didn't know existed will be quite visible uh, because of the fog accumulating on them. And one of the ones that uh, is still around, it's a small spider. It's called a spiny-backed orb weaver. I'll bet you many of our listeners have encountered this little spider. Uh, sometimes you run into the web, you don't see it, you don't see the web when it's not foggy, and you may actually walk into it. It's a little spider about this, oh, less than half an inch wide. They're often white with black spots or yellow with white spots, and they're in the shape of a, of a crab, uh, a saltwater you know, crustacean. So that's one of the things I've been seeing. And then there's, there are other spiders that I've noticed since you know, the fog was accumulating on their webs. One I had not seen around my house before is called the uh, marbled orb weaver. And I would recommend uh, that listeners who are interested in spiders go online and see a picture of this one. It's a beautiful spider, and I was really taken aback when I first saw it, and I got some pretty good photographs of it, if I do say so. So it's been a good fall for spiders uh, because the fog has made them so, so visible. Uh, speaking of spiders, uh, one of our listeners uh, sent an email that had a picture of um, a spider that was in their yard. Uh, our, our producer, Java, forwarded it to you. So if you could describe it uh, for us and uh, why you think the listener should be complimented. 
Yeah, the listener sent in a good photograph of a, it's a large spider. The first time a, a human encounters one of these, they can be somewhat intimidated by it. Uh, as you know, spiders have two body parts. And, uh, the, the head and the thorax are combined into a, what's called a cephalothorax, and then the abdomen uh, instead of three parts as an insect would have. This spider, is, as I said, is large. The, it, it can be at least an inch long, sometimes a little over an inch long, and I'm just talking about the body, not the legs. And then when you include the legs spread out, it's a huge thing. It could sort of frighten someone. It's very colorful. The, the abdomen is, um, I would say, a brick orange color with many, many little yellow spots all over it. And the cephalothorax is sort of a pale bluish-white color, or whitish-blue, you might say. The legs are, are, are enormous, and they have little tufts of hair on them. Uh, maybe you could post that uh, you know, on the podcast so folks could see that. And I, I would imagine that many of our listeners have seen this spider. It's called the, uh, uh, some people call it the banana spider. Uh, there's a there's another name for it. It's it's also known as the uh, I'm I'm sort of uh, the golden yeah the the web of the spider is yellow and it's called the golden silk orb weaver or the golden silk spider. The the orb that this or the web that this spider spins is not quite as attractive as some of our other spiders. Say so it's not as I don't find it as attractive as the little spiny back orb weaver that I was talking about earlier. But uh, it 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 does spin a huge web. It can be a yard across. And the folks who uh, emailed the picture to to MPB had about eight of these. I think they said in their yard, and they didn't smash them or <laughs> kill them as we might do with spiders. But the, some of the webs were over their four o'clocks, these flowers that bloom late in the day, and they were enjoying seeing the sphinx moths come to the, uh, to the four o'clocks. And the spiders, of course, with their webs above the flowers, were catching some of the sphinx moths. So the listeners moved the spider Using a broom, they carefully moved the spiders to another area in their yard. And that way the spiders could... You know, could get a, you know they built a web there, and they could uh, coexist, if you will, with the humans and with the sphinx moths. Um, you know, sometimes when you walk through a, a spider web, it's that sticky stuff, so it's kind of an unpleasant experience. But I always somewhat worry about the spider, like it would be someone that has just trashed your home or whatever. Um, but I imagine they can repair it. Is it is it really a, a major thing to kind of re-spin a web, or is that something that spiders are just naturally used to doing? I think they're probably naturally used to doing it because uh, there are many things in nature that can damage their webs, the, the weather for one thing. And I, I walk through them, too. Some, I, I try to avoid them, and I have had many, many of the spinyback orb weavers in my yard this year. And they've been almost unavoidable. I have one blocking my front entrance. I have avoided it. Uh, but, but I wear glasses, and the web gets on, you know, on my glasses, and I have to go clean because, it, as you say, it's a very sticky, messy thing. But the spiders, them, some of them take down the you know They spin the webs right after dark. And they're up during the night to catch insects. And then before the sun comes up in the morning, they take the web down. And by take it down, I mean they consume the web. They actually eat it. Hmm. So they're conserving resources. So I would imagine that uh, it's not the end of the world for a spider to have its web destroyed or damaged. 
All right. Uh, let's move on. Some other things that people aren't particularly happy about in nature are bees and wasps. Any truth to the fact that a bee or a wasp would chase someone to sting them? They can't. Yes, they can, actually. Uh, and I can tell you a story. Bumblebees will, will chase people. I've had them chase me. Now, I like bumblebees. In recent years, I've developed a real affinity for them. They're, they are you know, native bees, and I've learned that they are quite important pollinators. But if you tamper with their if you get too close to the nest and cause it to vibrate, they will come out after you. And this happened to me. I had hung a, an old gourd on a tool rack on the back of my house. It was a Martin gourd, and it had a crack in it, and it, I had taken it down. I just sort of absentmindedly hung it there for future reference. And Carolina wrens nested in the gourd. And then they, you know, they raised their young and they left. And then American bumblebees nested in the Carolina wren nest. I was aware they were there, and I was really, uh, you know, kind of proud to have them because American. There's some concern about American bumblebees. They uh, are considered, or they're being considered for the endangered species list in some areas. Their numbers seem way down. So I was really proud to have them nesting in this gourd on my back. But I forgot about them one day. This was on the, the gourd was hanging on a tool rack, and I grabbed a rake to do something, and I vibrated the gourd, and out came the worker bees after me, and they land and they and I you know fled, and they landed on my head, and I was stung several times. I actually slapped my glasses off; a lens came out of my glasses. It was a big deal, you know. But I should you know I lived to tell it. It was. The, Stings are somewhat painful for me, but it only lasts about 15 minutes, and then it, and then it was all over. Now, some people can be, you know, hyper-allergic to, uh, to bee stings, but, but the bees did chase me. I had to really run away uh, to get them to, <laughs> to leave me alone. And wasps, I, it, growing up, I was stung by wasps many times, and wasps will do the same thing if you tamper with their nest, and I think Libby could verify this. I, can t- I was chatting with Libby yesterday, and she told me a story about you're being glad to get back home from Oregon. And uh, she was getting back into her routine at home, and she was hanging clothes out. You know, she uses a solar clothes dryer, namely a clothesline. <laughs> and she was hanging clothes on the clothesline, and she didn't realize it. But while she was gone, some paper wasps had nested on the clothesline. And she, you know, shook their nest or stirred them up in some way. And she was stung a couple of times by these wasps. And, uh, you know, that can be very painful. And I think she's more sensitive to insect stings than I am. Before she could get in, the, in her house to, you know, do a little first aid on herself, she stepped in some fire ants. Oh, gosh. So, <laughs> so she, had a, she had a time of it, uh, a real Mississippi welcome, you might say. <laughs> um, yeah, I've, I uh, had a, an instance once where the wasps had started their nest sort of in the corner of my door to the, to my carport and was going out somewhere once, and it was a similar thing. I think when I closed the door, you know, it, it startled them, and then I got uh, stung a couple of times. With, in my case, one of them sort of got under my T-shirt, so I was frantically, you know, waving and, and trying to get rid of it. I got stung a couple of times, and it's funny because it feels like you're, you know, wherever you've been stung has like swollen up enormously when it's really not that bad. But in my case, again, it was uh, 
not too bad. I mean, it certainly hurt for a little while, but uh, no long-term uh, ill effects. So I was lucky about that. Joe, wanted to ask you about a couple of things um, and maybe whatever happened to them. That would be the, was it the killer hornets that we were worried about? And then, of course, years ago, we were all worried about the Africanized honeybees uh, coming. What Do we have any idea of the status on either of those? The killer hornets were discovered in the Pacific Northwest. I believe that's what you're talking about, right? They were found yeah. in Washington State. And I think maybe some were found in British Columbia, just above Washington. And I'm not a, a really up-to-date on that, but the last I heard was that the, the uh, colonies or nests that had been found were destroyed, but we can't be sure that there aren't others. So it's it's still sort of a question mark, but it's not something we want. This, this hornet comes from... Uh, Japan, somewhere in Asia, I believe. Japan, if I'm not mistaken. So they're trying to, the uh, people in the Washington Department of Agriculture, I'm not sure the exact name for that in Washington State, are keeping an eye out for these uh, for these killer hornets, so-called killer hornets. I understand they, that they can be very, very painful. The Africanized honeybees, that was somewhat overstated. They're, I don't think they were as bad as they were purported to be. Uh, but the last I heard, they were they were in Texas and interbreeding with the, you know, the uh, regular regular, if you will, honeybees. By the way, honeybees are not even our regular so-called regular honeybees are not native uh, to North America. They are non-native species, but ben- beneficial nonetheless and uh, are of economic importance. So you said there are some benefits to maybe trying to coexist with bees and wasps. Tell us about that. Definitely, definitely, definitely. The um, for, well, wasps first. You know, you know, almost nobody likes wasps, right? You can get stung by them, and it's just it's just a problem. But actually, when they're out and about, carrying on their lives without interference from humans, you see them moving around in the grass or in the weeds or in the flowers. They are actually catching and consuming some of our insect pests, little caterpillars that attacked our our garden plants. They are actually a beneficial insect. And at the same time, they're, pollin- they're pollinators. They're pretty important pollinators. And you can't say enough, you know, positive about pollinators. The same is true for our native bees, especially our bumblebees. They are pollinators, very important pollinators. And there's been a lot of interest in uh, conserving our native bees in recent years. Uh, you mentioned the, in the story about Libby where she was attacked by wasps and then also in fire ants. And I, in my experience, I, when I was bit by fire ants, to me, that was much more painful and long-lasting than a, than a wasp bite. Um, are there any benefits to the little fire ant creatures? Wow. That's, I must tell you, right up front, reveal my bias. I detest fire ants. I cannot tell you. <laughs> they're, they're really a problem. But... And, I, and it's hard to come up with anything positive, anything positive to say about fire ants. They they really are uh, are bad. But and they're non they were brought to this country inadvertently. They were introduced uh, unknowingly, apparently through the port of Mobile. There may be one positive benefit from fire ants. You know, they they nest in the ground, right in the soil, and they. In the process of nesting, they do aerate the soil. However, I think we can aerate the soil in other ways. <laughs> Fire ants are, are they they inj- they injure our and destroy our native ground nesting birds. They probably have a negative impact impact on 
the gopher tortoise. You know, they attack the gopher tortoise eggs, apparently. Some of our other reptiles, like it's possible they're having a negative impact on hognose snakes even. They are really a, a bad news. It's too bad they were uh, brought to this country. And I know it wasn't intentional. It was an accidental introduction. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Time for another break. And we thank you for choosing MPB as your station for news and ideas. It means a lot to us and to the community at large that a nonprofit station like MPB can thrive in such a crowded media landscape. You make that happen through your contributions. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and our guest for the hour, biologist Joe McGee. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. So, Joe, before we leave the unpleasant uh, ta- side of nature, uh, we, I'm, I'm glad we all can agree that we don't like fire ants, and uh, my method of getting rid of them is probably not the best, but I get some sort of weird satisfaction out of them, is when I'm mowing the lawn, I'll just mow right over the top of their, of their nest, realizing that that's probably not a good idea because they might, you know, uh, I might actually be stirring some up in the air. But anyway, oh, there must be a more effective way of dealing with fire ants. Do you have any suggestions? To tell you the truth, I don't think we'll ever get rid of them. I think they're here to stay. But I, like you, I sometimes mow over a mound. I, I, I would prefer to avoid it because when you do that, you scatter, you know, the ants just pour out. They come out like lava from a volcano. And they, they're all in the grass. So the next time I come around, I have a push mower. They, I step where they are, and they get in my socks. So I try, <laughs> actually, I try to avoid mowing the mound, hitting the mound. Yeah. But something I do, and this is not completely effective, but sometimes when it's really wet, and we've had a lot of wet weather this year, I will pour boiling water on the mound. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, the, the, the water is quickly cooled down by the soil, and the, the ants can be deep. But when it's really wet, they tend to come to the surface and I do believe I have wiped out a few ant mounds using boiling water. And that way there's no chemical residue. I know there are products on the market, you know, chemicals, but I, I sort of stay shy of those. I try to avoid too many, well, any pesticides, to tell you the truth. It's just, uh, it can be worse than the fire ants. So try boiling water. <laughs> yeah, I've heard I've heard that one as well. The other thing that I've heard when you are trying to get rid of a wasp's nest is that you need to make sure that all of the nest material. Some I think wasps kind of have a little stem at the top of their nest, and I've heard that if you just knock down kind of the paper part where they are and get rid of that, that if you leave that bit up, up at the top, they're going to come back there and rebuild that nest. And so what I try to do is make sure that you get the entire. Uh, you know, nest uh, uh, taken care of, and, and so maybe they will find uh, somewhere else to uh, to go. It, have, have you heard that? Is that true? That I, yes, I've had that happen. I, I'm, it doesn't happen every time. It's actually can be difficult to remove that little stem that you're mm-hmm. talking about. It's really firmly attached, but they they tend to tend to be a bit sight faithful. The longer you wait to remove the nest, the more likely they are to come back it seems they they can be really sight faithful early in the spring when they you know the queens first start building the nests uh if you remove it they, that tends to do the job they don't they my experience has been they don't come back early in the season but but later on when the nest is pretty large you've got lots of workers yeah they they're sight faithful they come back 
Yeah, and the other one that I kind of like, uh, and I think I'm right, isn't it the, the dirt darbers are the ones that build that little kind of tunnel looking thing on, on wood? Or are they the ones that actually bore into the wood? I'm not sure here. Yeah, the dirt daubers are the mud wasps. They're also known as bill nests of mud. And they're actually, they're harmless now. It may be unattractive. <laughs> they're all over my carport, I must tell you. They, uh, they're harmless. They, they're enemies of the spiders, though. They stuff those mud cells with spiders. They, they yeah. are out and about finding spiders, which they immobilize and stuff in to the little little chambers in their mud nest and then lay an egg on top of that. And when the egg hatches, it feeds on the spiders, which are not quite dead. They're just immobilized. But uh, the mud wasps are, are otherwise harmless. They're just, they may be unattractive, you know, if you have the nest all over your carport. And there are several different kinds. There's one kind that's really, I think is really neat to watch. It's called the pipe organ mud wasp. And the, the, the chambers of the nest resemble the... Uh, pipes and a pipe organ. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's uh it's interesting that uh you know the, um some of the things that we try to do to control them. So um um I, I think maybe try to coexist as best you can because as we were saying earlier it's it's when you disturb them that they kind of get angry and come after you. So if you can kind of identify them and stay away from them and you enjoy your part of the world and I'll enjoy mine, I think we all we all should be good. That's right. And by the way, I have never been stung by a dirt dauber. I understand that they they can sting, but it's you know very mild. You hardly notice it. But I've never been stung by a, a dirt dauber. They're they're not very aggressive towards towards humans. At least that has been my experience. So uh, before we let you go on uh, today's show, wanted you to tell us maybe about some of the birds that folks might be seeing uh, in Mississippi this time of year. Okay, yeah. Uh, if all migration is still going on, so if, if folks have a chance to get out with some binoculars and look, they're, they're, there's no telling what they can see. One of the birds that has arrived is our only migratory woodpecker, the yellow-bellied sapsucker. They arrived in my yard first two or three days in October, and so they've been around. Actually, there's another woodpecker that's somewhat migratory, the uh, northern flicker state bird of Alabama, but they're here in Mississippi year-round, but their numbers increase in the fall when some from from the north move in. So yellow-bellied sapsuckers. I'm still waiting for the arrival of the white-throated sparrows. I would be willing to bet you the next time we have a cool spell, like we recently had, that the white-throated sparrows will arrive uh, in Mississippi. In fact, some of the folks up north may have seen white-throated sparrows already. I, I haven't heard of any sightings, but uh, you never know. I've also had, and this is one that you really have to seek out, the average person would not see this bird but i've seen them behind my house it's a little wren called a sedge wren and they're in in mississippi in the fall winter and early spring so those are some things to look out for the yellow-bellied sapsucker for sure they're here and um, busy um, creating their little sap wells in in the trees um what about if someone has a bird feeder in their yard is it uh, is it good to keep it up year-round I do, but I cut back. I cut way back in the summer, you know, late spring and summer. And right, interestingly, this time of year, I have fewer birds coming to a feeder than than almost any other time of the year. I think there's lots of wild food for them to eat. Perhaps there there elsewhere, I have just a few cardinals and uh, oh, uh, some morning doves coming to my feeders, and that's about all right now. But when the weather gets cold, when the weather turns really cold, then we'll have you know all kinds of sparrows and. The chickadees and titbites and the woodpeckers will all start coming to the feeders. So it's not too soon to start thinking about, you know, 
your bird feeder strategy if you plan to you know feed the birds this winter. Uh, we know that some birds are cavity nesters. Uh, do we see any of those kind of birds around this time of year? Oh, yeah. Some of them are permanent residents, like our eastern bluebirds. Uh, screech owls are, are cavity nesters. And now it's not too early to think about putting up a birdhouse. If, if you plan to put up a birdhouse, and that is a, you know, a man-made cavity for the cavity nesters, now would be a good time to start thinking about that and then maybe put it up uh, after Christmas, you know, between Christmas and New Year's or in January. So it, it's up and ready for the birds in the spring when they start nesting. In fact, a screech owl will use a nest box, you know, just to roost in, uh, even this time of year. So, uh, yeah, and other cavity, let me see, chickadees are cavity nesters, tufted titmice. There are a number of our cavity nesters are permanent residents uh, in the state. So it's not too early to think about putting up a nest box, you know, if you plan to do that. And what about uh, birds of prey? What type of uh, birds of that, that kind might we see this time of year? Uh Red-shouldered hawks are a good one to see. Uh, they, I, I've been seeing them. I see them almost every day behind my house. Red-tailed hawks, especially if you're say you're traveling up I-55 towards Grenada or towards Memphis, you'll see them perched along the highway. Uh, let's see. Uh, the, the little screech owl I mentioned is a bird of prey, one of the nocturnal birds of prey. I hear, you know, when we had the cool spell, I turned off the air conditioner and opened my bedroom window, and I heard barred owls at night. So that's a good one to listen for. Uh, maybe not, you might not see it, but you can uh, listen for it. Uh, I'm, let me see, what am I forgetting? Uh, the, red, the red-shouldered hawk, that's a really obvious one. Something you mentioned in some notes that you sent me was the sparrow hawk. Mm-hmm. And the sparrowhawk, the name has, has been changed. It's now called uh, an American kestrel. It's not a true hawk. It's actually a falcon. And I don't see those in the summer. They do breed in Mississippi very sparingly. There's a subspecies that breeds in Mississippi, but you hardly ever see them in the summer. But just recently, I saw three in one day. Hmm. So they have arrived. That's a very colorful little bird, something to keep an eye out for. They, they hunt in open areas. They perch on utility lines. Uh, that's that would be a good one for folks to get to know the the uh, American kestrel or sparrowhawk as it used to be called. So uh, to wrap up earlier, we had a question about frogs uh, in the cooler weather that's approaching. Will we see, uh, or actually probably not see, but we will hear more frog activity? Yes, right now the frogs are pretty silent. The breeding season is over for most of them in Mississippi, but after Christmas. During the Christmas holidays, sometimes I hear the first spring peepers. I heard a, a spring peeper calling a few day, a few nights ago, but it was just you know an outlier. They, this is not the time of year they call, but I recognized it as a spring peeper. But after Christmas, we should start hearing the spring peepers, the chorus frogs. Uh, there is one frog you might hear this time of year. We have a lot of and it rained here this, at my house this morning, and when it gets cooler, you might hear leopard frogs. They breed during the cool weather season. And then as the cool weather progresses, as we move on into January and February, you could hear pickerel frogs possibly. Uh, I'm probably forgetting something. Uh, but the chorus frogs and the spring peepers for sure are very vocal uh, uh, in the early winter, early winter through early spring. All right, uh, that's going to wrap us up for today. Joe, thanks so much. We always enjoy having you on the air, a great source of information. So we appreciate you helping us out on Creature Comforts, which is, which is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. Funding provided in part by you, and you're getting your opportunity this week 
To become a sustaining member or even give a one-time financial gift. To do that, go to mpbonline.org or call 888-372-4483. It's 1-888-372-4483. Stay tuned. Coming up at next at 10, it's AutoCorrect. We'll be back next Thursday for another edition of Creature Comforts heard only on MPB Think Radio. But before we go, here's more on becoming a member. Here's Liz Gill and Jason Klein. <laughs> 